astrophysicist and author. The, interview asked, the interviewer asked Tyson, do you believe in God? And Dr. Tyson responded by giving what he considered to be a very typical description of God. In this description, God is all-powerful and all-good. And then Dr. Tyson said that he looks around and he doesn't see evidence of both those things being true simultaneously. Tyson brought up earthquakes, tsunamis, and diseases as being a lack of evidence for God being both all-good and all-powerful. I suspect that many, if not most of us here today, have pondered this question at one time or another. Is God both powerful and good? Maybe you're pondering that question right now. Does God see the evil that's going on in the world? And if he does see it, does he care? And if he does care, can he and will he do anything about it? Our text this morning is the book of Obadiah, and in this book, God has a message for his people. He sees, he cares, and he can and will act in power and goodness. So please turn in your Bibles to Obadiah, which can be found on page 772 if you're using a pew Bible. And while you're turning there, I'd like to say a few things about the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets, not because the book is less important, but just because it's shorter in length than some of the prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah. Obadiah was a very common name in ancient Israel. By one count, there are 13 different Obadiahs in the Old Testament. And a number of scholars do not think that the Obadiah who wrote this book can be positively identified as one of the other Obadiahs in Scripture. Additionally, Obadiah doesn't provide us an exact date for when he wrote. Some prophets introduce their prophecy with words like, during the reign of so-and-so. But Obadiah doesn't do that. So the clues within the book of Obadiah tell us that it was probably written between 586 B.C. and likely before 500 B.C. But we can't be sure exactly who Obadiah was or the exact time of his prophecy. However, what we can be sure of is that God gave Obadiah a message. Obadiah's name means servant of the Lord. He was a divinely appointed prophet to speak God's words to his people. He starts his book, as you can see in verse 1, with the words, The Vision of Obadiah. This book is a written account of a revelation that God gave to Obadiah. The Lord God, as you can see in verse 1, gave this vision to Obadiah. Most likely you should be able to see that in your English Bible, the word God in, in verse 1 is in all capitals. This is our English Bible's way of translating Yahweh, the covenant name of God. This is the personal name of God which he used to reveal himself to his people. And then the word that comes before God, Lord, could be translated as Lord, Master, or Sovereign. So right from the start in Obadiah, we're confronted with the fact that this prophecy is from God, and that God is both personal and sovereign. He is personal and he interacts with his creation, and he is sovereign and he is mighty over his creation and can do in his creation what he pleases. Obadiah had a message from God. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Obadiah wrote that message down, and that message is the passage that we have the privilege of studying this morning. Obadiah discusses three different days in his sermon. The first day he describes is the day of the destruction of Edom, one of the nations that bordered Jerusalem. The second day is the day of the destruction of Jerusalem when the wealth and people of, of Jerusalem were carried off. And the third day is the day of the Lord. So those are the three points that will form the outline through which we'll look at the book of Obadiah. So if you're taking notes, the three points are, number one, the day of the Lord. Sorry, number one, the, the day of destruction. Number two, the day of Edom. And number three, 
the day of the Lord. And I'll say those again, hopefully correctly, as we go through the service. Um, so before we jump into our first point, I do want to give you sort of the overall message of Obadiah to help, help us get oriented as we read. The main message of the book of Obadiah is this. God will save his people by establishing his kingdom through the righteous judgment of those who oppose his people. God will save his people by establishing his kingdom through the righteous judgment of those who oppose his people. So let's begin with the study of our first point, the day of destruction. Follow along as I read Obadiah 1 through 9. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timan, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. As we just read in verse 1, God is talking about Edom in these verses. So who is Edom? Well, Edom was a nation to the southeast of the Dead Sea, one of Judah's neighbors. We'll get into more specific details about Edom later in the service. Uh, but for now, let, let's, let's look specifically at what God is saying in these first verses of Obadiah. We can see in verse 3 that Edom has been prideful. One of the reasons for their pride was their advantageous position. They were located among mountains and cliffs, which provided an easily defensible position against invading armies. Edom became proudful because they could live in the clefts of the rock, as verse 3 says. They thought no one could bring them down to the ground. So the rhetorical question at, at the end of verse 3 drives this home. Who will bring me down to the ground? And the word will in that question could even be translated can. Who can bring me down? The implication is that no one can. It's not even possible, according to Edom. Edom's position was secure. But we see sovereign Yahweh's response in verse 4. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. They think that they're invulnerable because they live in the cliffs. But God says, even if you were to soar on high like an eagle, even more if you were to build your home as high as the stars, even from there I can bring you down. There is no defensible position against the almighty God of the universe. At Purdue University, there was a professor who used to conduct a certain experiment. And in this experiment, the professor would manipulate various parameters, but before each change, he would ask his students, do you think the reading on the detector will go up, stay the same, or go down? And if the students told him the wrong answer, he would bet them a beer that they were wrong. And students would take him up on this. And when I heard this story, I thought to myself, who would do this? Who would bet against the professor? 
He's the one who designed the experiment. He's probably performed it a hundred times. He's written textbooks in the field. How could you possibly know better than this professor? Why would you bet against the professor? Well, that's exactly what Edom is doing here. God made the cliffs. He made the eagles and he made the stars. And yet Edom says to God, no one can bring us down. And God replies, I made those cliffs, and I can and will bring you down, and I will bring you down hard. Look at verses 5 and 6. These verses describe the extent of how far down God would bring Edom. Obadiah begins these verses by drawing an analogy. When thieves come in the middle of the night, they only steal enough for themselves. They, only, they, don't, they don't typically take everything, they just take what they can carry. But Obadiah can't even finish this thought without interrupting himself by exclaiming how you have been destroyed. The ruin of Edom is so great that Obadiah can't even make an analogy without pausing to wonder at the extent of Edom's destruction. The rest of verse 5 is similar. Usually grape gatherers leave some grapes behind, but Edom will be destroyed and nothing will be left. Verse 6 says that Edom has been pillaged and ransacked, and even the hidden treasures, the ones in safekeeping, even those have been sought out and taken. What about Edom's allies? Will they be any help? Verse 7 communicates that even Edom's allies have turned on them. They've driven them from their borders, deceived them, set traps for them, and utterly confused them. Verse 8 says that even Edom's wise men will be destroyed. The wisdom and understanding of Edom will not count for anything in the coming onslaught. Verse 9 says that their mighty men, their warriors, will be dismayed and terrified. Not only will the mighty warriors be overcome, but every man in Edom will be cut off for slaughter. Who will do this? All through these verses, we see that the destruction of Edom is not attributed merely to invading armies, but to God himself. Look at verse 1. Yahweh sends a report to the nations, a messenger to raise up armies for battle against Edom. Look back at verse 2. God says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. Look at verse 4. From there I will bring you down. And verse 8. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom? And notice the certainty that God will accomplish these things. Verse 1 says, thus says the Lord God. Thus says the sovereign Yahweh. Verse 4 and verse 8 both say, declares the Lord. The sovereign Lord has declared with certainty that he will do these things. And as the Philadelphia Children's Catechism of 1840 says, God can do all his holy will. The Lord is sovereign over the movements of action and actions of kings and nations, and he will send the nations to bring Edom low. This imagery of high and low in these verses should bring a familiar theme to mind. James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 say that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. God has been opposing the proud all through the biblical narrative. I love the way that Kevin DeYoung describes the Tower of Babel in his excellent children's book, The Biggest Story. He says, One time, a whole bunch of people got together to build a giant tower. They thought they could build all the way up to heaven, but it must must not have been all that big because God had to come down just to see it. The Greeks in Corinth in the first century prided themselves in their wisdom. They had great learning and they were great orators and debaters. And God brought them down. God said in 1 Corinthians 1.19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. All our reasons to be prideful against God are totally invalid. Think about it. Edom was prideful in their security, and God brought them down. The people of Babel were prideful in their accomplishments, and God brought them down. 
The Greeks in Corinth were prideful in their wisdom, and God brought them down. So what are we prideful about? Are we prideful about our security? We have things that give us security. Bank accounts, homes with locks or security systems, cars with five-star safety ratings, police that patrol our neighborhoods, a country with a strong military. But God can bring us down. Are we prideful about our accomplishments? Many of us have accomplishments that the world tells us to be prideful about. Education, families, jobs, respect. But God can bring us down. Many of us are wise in the things of the world. Some of us are well-read or have been trained to think clearly or have been around the block a few times. But God can bring us down. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We must fight in the power of the Holy Spirit against pride and strive for humility. If we are prideful like Edom, God will bring us down. God brought Edom down because of their pride. But it was not only on account of their pride that God brought Edom down. He brought them down also because they were actively opposed to God's people and God's purposes. And this brings us to our second point, the day of Edom. Follow along as I read verses 10 through 14. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. As I said earlier, Edom was Judah's neighbor. But Edom was not just any neighbor. Genesis 36:19 identifies Edom as the nation that descended from Esau. And Esau, as you may recall, was one of the grandsons of Abraham. God revealed himself to Abraham and promised to Abraham that he would make a great nation out of Abraham and that through Abraham's offspring, all nations would be blessed. God gave Abraham a son, Isaac, in his old age. And God took the promises that he had made to Abraham and established them with Isaac as well. Isaac married Rebekah, and Rebekah conceived with twins. And the twins struggled with one another in the womb, and Rebekah asked the Lord why this was happening. And God responded and said, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. These two sons would not both be part of the nation that God was building out of Abraham's and Isaac's descendants. They would each be the father of a separate nation. Through one nation, all peoples would be blessed, and the other nation would oppose that nation. And really, this is just the working out of another one of God's promises that he made far earlier. A promise that God gave to the first people, Adam and Eve. After Satan tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and after their sin, God cursed Satan. But that curse contained a promise. God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. All throughout history, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman have been in enmity with one another. Jacob, who would later be called Israel, was the offspring of the woman. And Esau, who would later be called Edom, was the offspring of the serpent. Through Jacob would come the offspring that would bruise the serpent's head. Through Jacob would come the offspring that would bless all nations. 
and the offspring of Esau would oppose the offspring of Jacob. And this is exactly what we see in these verses. Edom is told in verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. And the rest of the verses describe this violence. When the offspring of Jacob, the land, uh, the nation of Judah was invaded by the Babylonians, verse 11 says that Edom not only stood by, they joined in. On the day that strangers came and carried off the wealth and people of Judah, Edom stood aloof. And not only that, but Edom cast lots for what remained of the spoil and the plunder. They were like one of the invaders. They were in league with the invaders. In these verses, we see that Edom is being judged for opposing God's people and his purposes. Verse 13 indicates that Edom is gloating over the disaster that has befallen the city of God's people. Jerusalem, the city of God's people, was also known as Mount Zion. Psalm 74, 2, which we read earlier this morning, asks God, Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Jerusalem was the city of the people of God, and it was the location of the temple, the Old Testament dwelling place of God. God promised to bless all nations through the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So by opposing the offspring of Jacob, Edom was not only opposing God's people. Edom was opposing God's purposes for the entire world. Think about what Edom was trying to do. Verse 14 says that they stood at the crossroads to cut off the fugitives. Survivors were fleeing the ruined city, and they were running for their lives. And Edom ambushed them, cut them off, and handed them over to Babylon. Edom did their part to try to totally eliminate the people of God. And in so doing, they were trying to eliminate the people through whom God would send the Savior of the whole world. Edom opposed God's people and God's purposes. Turn to Psalm 137, which can be found on page 521 of your pew Bible. The things for which Edom is condemned in verses 10 through 14 of Obadiah happened in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and carried off the people of Judah. This psalm, Psalm 137, was written while the people of Judah were in captivity in Babylon. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us, one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Here the psalmist laments their condition. How can they offer God worship in a foreign land without a temple? God had promised to give them a land and to bless all people through their nation. And now they weren't even a nation and they were completely disconnected from their land. And so we can see the anguish of God's people as, as they saw these things. It's hard to read Psalm 137 and not be affected with deep sadness and the distress ex expressed by the psalmist. And Psalm 74, which was also written after the destruction of Jerusalem, starts with these words, O oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? And later in Psalm 74, the psalmist asks, How long, O Lord, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? And almost in answer to that question, God tells his people, Not long. I will bring Edom down. Turn back to Obadiah, which can be found on page 772. 
The first nine verses of Obadiah are a message of hope to God's people that God is not unaware of their plight, nor is he indifferent. He will bring down those who oppose his people and his purposes. What's fascinating is that verse 1 says this prophecy is concerning Edom, not to Edom. We have no record of Edom ever hearing this prophecy. The prophecy was given to God's people about Edom. Obadiah wasn't written as a warning to Edom or even to pronounce judgment on Edom. Now, Obadiah was written to bless the people of God who were discouraged. Do you see that? They've been invaded, pillaged, plundered, and ruined. Their temple was destroyed, and they were captives in a land that was not their own. They were broken and discouraged, and God sends them this message of hope. Edom will not go unpunished. But what about other nations? What about those who have opposed God's people and purposes throughout history and even today? Throughout the world today, God's people are being persecuted, imprisoned, and even killed. There are systems and societies and governments that are actively opposing God's people and God's purposes. Think about the persecution and pressure faced by God's people in North Korea, Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, and Syria, just to name a few. If we think that global persecution is becoming a thing of the past because the world is somehow becoming more tolerant or democratic, we need to look again at the facts. Some researchers identified 2016 as the worst year yet for global persecution of Christians. And even in our own country, those who are advancing the latest expansion of the sexual revolution are trying to silence Christians. As James White has said, they don't want equal rights, they want uber rights. They want such a complete and total victory that they would have us marginalized, invalidated, and silenced. They're even trying to force the sexual revolution on our little children. And as if that isn't enough, people who we thought were our brothers and sisters in Christ are demonizing us and shaming us because we are clinging to the Bible standards for gender and sexual ethics. The analogy may be somewhat stretched, but we could say that the Edomites in modern American Christianity are joining with the Babylonians of our culture as they attempt to invade and destroy us because of our biblical sexual ethics. Where is God in all of this? We might think to ourselves, it's great that God held Edom accountable 2,500 years ago. But where has he been for the last 2,500 years? Does God know about what's going on today? Does he care? And can he and will he do anything about it? And that brings us to our third point, the day of the Lord. Follow along as I read Obadiah 15 through 21. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepherd shall possess the cities of the Negev. 
Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. In this next section, we see that Edom in history, God's judgment of Edom in history is a microcosm of God's eschatological judgment of all nations. Look at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. Even though Edom in these verses is often the immediate reference, the whole section is about the eschatological day of the Lord and the final separation between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent that we confessed together earlier in the service. Another way of saying that this is that, theologically speaking, Edom in history stands for all the peoples and nations that oppose God and his people and his purposes. Edom was judged in history. It was invaded and plundered in 500 B.C. That's what Obadiah prophesied in verses 1 through 10. But what we see here in verses 15 through 21 is much greater than what has happened to Edom in history. On the day of the Lord, justice will be done. All the peoples and nations that opposed God and his people will get the punishment that their rebellion and opposition deserves. Verse 15 says that as they have done, so it will be done to them. Their deeds will come back on their own heads. Verse 16 drives this home. Edom performed drunken, profane activities on God's holy mountain in Jerusalem. So God will make them drink continually. They dishonored God by drinking, so he will punish them by making them drink and drink and gulp down until they collapse in a stupor and never get up again. As Revelation 14.10 says, those who oppose God will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength in the cup of his anger. But this judgment is not a message of judgment only. Remember what I said the main message of Obadiah is? God will save his people by establishing his kingdom through the righteous judgment of those who oppose his people. Look at verse 17. God will preserve a remnant who will be brought back to God's holy place, and they will possess all the possessions God has promised to give them. And so we see that in Obadiah, salvation and judgment are intimately connected. And we see this not only in Obadiah, but in the entire Bible. God saved Noah and judged the rest of the world. God saved Lot and judged Sodom. God saved Israel and judged the Egyptians. God saved Rahab and judged the people of Jericho. God saved Esther and the Jews and judged Haman. God saved David and judged Saul. What is the end result of the day of the Lord? Well, look at the end of the book at verse 21. Verse 21 ends with these words, And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. On the day of the Lord, the Lord will establish his kingdom. And to be even more specific, this kingdom belongs to Jesus Christ. He is the king of the kingdom. Revelation 11:15 picks up the language of Obadiah 21, and applies it to Jesus. Revelation 11:15 says, And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The Apostle John follows in Obadiah's footsteps. God gave Obadiah a vision of the day of the Lord, and he wrote it down as an encouragement to God's people. God gave John also a vision of the day of the Lord and the consummation of redemptive history, and John wrote it down as an encouragement to God's people. This new kingdom belongs to the Lord and his Christ. And the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ, will reign forever and ever. He will take his great power and begin to reign, and this kingdom will not be limited to just a part of the globe. This kingdom will be universal in scope and cover the entire world. William Hendrickson comments on this passage in Revelation. He says, To be sure, God always reigns. Yet that power and authority with which he exercises with respect to the universe 
is not always apparent. At times, it seems as if Satan is the supreme ruler. But once the judgment day has arrived, the full royal splendor of God's sovereignty will be revealed, for all opposition will be abolished. Then it will be clear to all that the world has become the province of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Further on in Revelation 11, the Apostle John continues his discussion of the reign of Christ and quotes Psalm 2. And because Psalm 2 is such an important psalm, let's turn there. You can find Psalm 2 on page 448 of your pew Bibles. In Psalm 2, just as in Obadiah, the nations rage and oppose God's people and his purposes. But just as in Obadiah, the nations pose no real threat to God's purposes. God laughs and holds them in derision. Follow along as I read Psalm 2. Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God will save his people by establishing his kingdom through the righteous judgment of those who oppose his people. The nations rage against God and his anointed, but God's anointed will break them and dash them to pieces. At this point, I think the obvious question for ourselves is this. Have we opposed God, his people, or his purposes? Have we set ourselves against his anointed? And if we're honest with ourselves, the answer is yes. We can be quick to condemn Edom for their pride, and for opposing God's purposes until we realize that we ourselves have been prideful and rebellious as well. Every one of us has chosen to exalt ourselves against our maker and has chosen to pursue our purposes for God's world and not his purposes. Which means that if we look at the book of Obadiah, if we look at Psalm 2, then what we have in store for ourselves is not blessing. It's not the kingdom of God. It's judgment, destruction, ruin. The prophet Amos says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. The day of the Lord is a day of darkness and judgment if we oppose God's anointed and God's purposes. If you are opposed to God's anointed and his purposes, do not long for the Lord to appear. And since that has been all of us, since we have all opposed God and his anointed, what should we do? We'll look at verses 11 and 12 of Psalm 2. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The imagery of kissing the sun simply means to pay him homage as you would a ruler or a king in ancient times. Friends, brothers, and sisters, you and I have a choice. We can either kiss the sun or we can perish. We can either enjoy his blessing by finding our refuge in him or we can endure his wrath. 
How is Jesus able to provide a refuge for us? Well, remember that I said that salvation and judgment are intimately connected. The theme of salvation through judgment finds its ultimate expression in the death of Jesus Christ. Christ bore the judgment of God so his people could be saved. Isaiah 53, 11 says that he, the righteous one, bore the iniquities of his people so that they could be counted righteous. Salvation through judgment. Christ bore our sins in his body on that tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, his people have been healed. Friends, brothers, and sisters, I plead with you to repent of your rebellion. Repent of your pride. Repent of opposing God and his purposes. Kiss the Son. Find your refuge in him. Believe that the eternal Son of God humbled himself and became a man without ceasing to be God. Believe that he lived the perfect life, that he never once opposed God or his purposes. Believe that he died to pay the penalty for your rebellion, and believe that God raised him up from the dead, and that God is establishing his kingdom. Believe that he will reign forever and ever. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in your security, your accomplishments, or your wisdom. God can bring you down. Trust in Jesus. He is our only refuge. Find your refuge in him and live your life in honor of him. Kiss the Son and give him glory. If you'd like to know more about what it means to repent and believe in Jesus, find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about Jesus. Well, there's one more thing about the day of the Lord that we need to discuss from Obadiah. So turn back with me to Obadiah on page 772 and look at verses 18 through 20. Verses 18 through 20 describe how the Lord will establish his kingdom. And what's interesting to note is that in verse 18, we see Israel itself as the means that God uses to judge the nations and establish his kingdom. Remember, at the time of writing, the Israelites were scattered out among the nations. But here we see God reconstituting Israel and using them to judge the nations and establish his kingdom. And in so doing, God will deliver and bless his people. The geography terms in verses 19 through 20 are depicting where the scattered people of God are coming from and where the new territory will stretch to. In these verses, the people of God are enlarging God's territory among the nations. The people of God are being gathered from the nations to go expand the kingdom into the nations. They will not only conquer and take possession of their own lands, but they will conquer and take possession of Mount Esau, the land of Edom, and other lands as well, like the land of the Philistines. The borders of Israel, after the day of the Lord, will be far greater than they were under David and Solomon. In fact, this kingdom will keep expanding until it covers the whole globe. Doesn't this remind you of what we read in Psalm 2? God says to Jesus, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. It is too light a thing that Jesus would be God's servant to raise up only the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. No, God's purpose for the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, was to make him a light to all nations, to make his salvation known to the ends of the earth. This is also what we read in Revelation 7 when Jesus is being worshipped in his kingdom. Revelation 7 verse 9 says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God is giving Jesus, as his inheritance, a people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples 
and languages. And this is how I want us to conclude, thinking about how Jesus is claiming his heritage among the nations. And as we do, we need to see one crucial point. Christ is the true Israel. He is the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of the woman with a capital O. Which means that the church is the eschatological Israel through our union with Christ. The apostles make this point clear. Israel was a type and a shadow of the true people of God, Jesus Christ and his body, the church. The true people of God are those who have faith, those who have been purchased and redeemed by Jesus. One of the places we see this truth clearly is in 1 Peter 2, 9. Here Peter takes the words spoken to Israel on Mount Sinai and applies them to believers. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And what Peter says next provides a purpose statement for the church. He says, That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In Obadiah, God promised to reconstitute Israel from among the nations and send them to spread the kingdom into the nations. And this is what Peter is saying. This is what has been happening ever since Christ's first coming. God is gathering his people from among the nations and then sending them to spread the good news of the kingdom into the nations. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 14, that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Brothers and sisters, through our faith union with Jesus Christ, you and I are the reconstituted Israel spoken of in Obadiah. God is gathering us to himself from among the nations to be a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Jesus is claiming his heritage from among the nations as we preach the gospel of his kingdom among the nations. We've been blessed by God so that we can bless others with the good news. God is making the nations Christ's heritage through our proclamation of the gospel. The mission of the church is to expand its borders among the nations. So let us do that with faithfulness and boldness. Let us devote ourselves to our king and spread the good news of his kingdom. Let's share the good news of his kingdom with our friends, family, neighbors, and coworkers. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Therefore, going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that God has commanded us. And behold, Jesus the Lord, God's anointed, The Son of God, the King of the kingdom, is with you always to the end of the age. The King is on the throne, and he's coming back soon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you know what's going on, that you care, and that you act. We thank you that nothing can and nothing will thwart your plan to redeem a people for yourself from every nation. We thank you for Jesus, that he is our king and that he is on the throne. In his name, amen. Our last song this morning is A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is number eight in the hymnals provided. In this song, we sing of God's plan to make the nations Christ's heritage through our proclamation of the gospel. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. God's truth abideth, and his kingdom is forever. Please stand as we sing.